Warning. This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for strong language, adult situations, and drug references. Listener discretion is advised. Nil Desperandum 30, The Drug Study, by James Austin Farrell. Good day, everyone. Welcome back once again to another issue of Nil Desperandum. Whether you're listening to the podcast download or listening to the No Agenda stream, we appreciate you being here. Main fiction today is The Drug Study, by James Austin Farrell. But first up, Adam Gauntlet returns with another selection, or two, from his bookshelf. Hello, and welcome to the bookshelf. Uh, this time I want to talk trash, the nature of realism, and what it means for a writer's longevity. We all have our guilty pleasures, the books we read for pure enjoyment. They might be forgettable, utterly without merit, but that doesn't matter. We just like them, and any faults they may have, we happily ignore. My go-to for that sort of thing is crime fiction, and I'm going to use two examples, the 87th Precinct novels of Ed McBain and Agatha Christie's Miss Marple series. McBain, born Salvatore Lombino, was a native New Yorker who drew on his hometown to create Isola, the fictional big city in which his 87th Precinct cops are based. This is police procedural fiction at its finest and kicks off with Cop Hater, first published in 1956. A bad dog killer is knocking off cops. Who will be the next to fall? The story introduces the precinct, the city, and also Steve Carella, the cop who becomes the hero of the books and who I suspect is a fictionalised Lombino. This is a very 50s kind of series. The setting, the characters, the attitudes, and the crimes are all the sort of thing you find in a noir, probably with someone like Robert Ryan as Carella. That's hardly surprising, since 13 of the books were published between 1956 and 1960, including some of the best. The Mugger, Killer's Wedge, The Pusher, See Them Die. There are 54 novels in all, including one or two, like Widows, that are essentially compilations of scenes from the previous books. The last was Fiddlers, published in 2005, the year Lombino died. Agatha Christie based her elderly sleuth on her own grandmother, as well as borrowing some characteristics from her granny's spinster friends, and started her career in 1930 with The Murder at the Vicarage. Colonel Prothero, despised by all, is found dead in the vicar study, and it's up to Miss Marple to determine whether either of the people who confessed to the crime could have done it, or whether it was carried out by someone else. Christie, although a prolific writer, didn't spend nearly as much time with Miss Marple as Lombina did with Carella. There are only twelve novels, not counting short story compilations, and while Miss Marple is rooted in her beloved village of St Mary Mead, she does do a fair bit of travelling, going so far as the Caribbean in one adventure. Murder isn't her business, but it becomes her avocation. It seems he can't even go on holiday without tripping over at least one dead body. The last book was published in 1976, shortly after Christie's death. I enjoy both series, but while I'd recommend them as a pleasant way to pass the time, I can't honestly claim that either really makes the reader think, except to work out who done it. For some readers, that would be a failing. People occasionally go to thrillers expecting a sociological expose, or a look at the seedy underbelly of life, and for them there are books like Green's Brighton Rock, or movies like Kurosawa's Straight Dog. 
for the rest who don't mind a bit of cotton candy, this is pure escapism. McBain gives us the naked city with its eight million stories, while Christie hands us the kind of English idyll that probably didn't even exist in the 1930s, let alone now. McBain has his tough detectives with hearts of gold, the type you'd find in any one of a hundred different noir films played by actors whose faces we know but whose names we sometimes forget, people like Richard Widmark, William Conrad and William Talman. Christie has her sweet elderly auntie with a mind like a steel trap and a thorough understanding of the darker side of human nature, the sort of characters that have been played any number of times by actors like Angela Lansbury or Margaret Rutherford. Yet if I were to pick a reason why I preferred one over the other, it would be that Christie's marple seems real to me, where McBain's 87th Precinct does not. Realism is more than setting or character. At its root, it is about change, what happens to a person or a place over time, how events affect the people they happen to, and how the world around us changes, even though we pretend it never does. People grow old, friends come and go, the things we thought were certain and unchanging vanish or decay, and of a sudden we're faced with a world that seems quite unlike the one we thought we knew. The chief difference here is that McBain's city, his precinct, and his characters never fundamentally change where Christie Smith Marple and her St. Mary Mead do. A critic once said of McBain that any idea these stories approach realistic accounts of police activity is well off the mark. That both is and is not true. The critic was writing in 1979, but the series is firmly rooted in the 1950s. The attitude, the city, and the characters pay lip service to the passage of the years, but at heart the books still go back to that golden period where McBain pulled out Thirteen novels in five years, the only time when the books could be considered realistic depictions of police work. And the same is true of the characters. Steve Carella gets shot in The Pusher, the third novel, and McBain fully expected him to die, but the publishers persuaded him otherwise. As a storyline, threatening the main character's life is electrifying, but the pusher had unintended consequences. Forever after, when McBain needed a go-to plot device to ramp up suspense, he threatened Steve Carella. Maybe he was captured by psycho killers, the doll, or set on fire, fuzz, or perhaps he'd get shot again, the heckler. The same happens with other characters which is Bert Kling, established as a tragic figure early on, when his girlfriend is killed in robbery. When McBain needed drama and didn't want to punch Steve again, he gave Kling yet another romantic tragedy. As a formula, it works well enough, but it does mean that once you've read the first 13 novels, you can pretty much guess what's going to happen in the other 41. The same isn't true of St. Mary Mead or Miss Marple, which is doubly odd as both the setting and the character are firmly rooted in what has come to be known as conventional English detective fiction, the sort of locked room conundrum that only seems to take place at stately houses and vicarages. Half the fun of that sort of thing is nostalgia for days gone by, and the quiet village life London commuters in particular wish they could have for themselves. Yet St. Mary Mead does change. The passing of the years brings housing developments and newcomers, while the old manor house gets pulled down and turned into a block of flats. Meanwhile, Miss Marple, the ageless spinster, ages. She can't get around as easily as she used to, nor can she devote her energies to her garden when her friends die, and not all of them are murdered. It isn't a plot device to ramp up suspense. 
In doing these things, Christie fosters a belief that St. Mary Mead is a real place, her characters real people, and consequently what happens to them is important. That's not to say I think McBain's novels are bad or that I don't like them, because I don't and I do. However, it may well mean they don't last as long as they might otherwise have done. The mystery writers do go out of style. Nobody's about to produce an 87th Precinct television series, but Miss Marple's still going strong on British TV, while Disney's about to revamp the character for American audiences. There's no prospect of a Steve Carella movie, but someone's bound to pitch on the Marple at some point. Meanwhile, Penguin keeps Marvel in print, and has done since the author's death in 1976. McBain, who died in 2005, is currently in the hands of Thomas and Mercer, Amazon's new publishing arm, and I can't help but wonder how long that will last. If Amazon's experiment in e-publishing isn't profitable, will McBain vanish into obscurity? Only time will tell. That's it from me. Have a good one. Bye-bye. And once again, Adam, thank you so much. You're a star, sir. We appreciate your work. If you have an idea for an article, either a one-off or a recurring article to run here on Nil Desperandum, please feel free to get in contact with me, uh, editor at gmail.com. We'd be interested in a great many things, some particular ideas. If you have a particular uh, book or novel or uh, story that, that you would like to share with us, uh, not necessarily a book review, but you know something that touched you in particular, that has some particular emotional meaning to you, either because of the content or just because of the time in your life when you read it. We'd love to hear about that. Or I would also really like to get a uh, philosophical series going on here, just five, ten minutes you know, every few weeks discussing some particular topic of philosophy. And I don't really have the time to put that together myself, so uh, if someone else would want to jump in and do that, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, or anything else, if you have some ideas of your own, as I said, please uh, don't hesitate to share. Uh, editor at gmail.com. Anyway, on to our main fiction. This is The Drug Study by James Austin Farrell. James Austin Farrell is a journalist and living in Thailand. He was born in the UK, but has lived most of his adult life abroad. His journalism has mostly been published in Asia, and he has had some fiction previously published in Skive magazine. Our narrator, who has done a brilliant job with this piece, is Ed Smithson. This is part one of the drug study. The next part will be along next week. I hope you enjoy. The Drug Study by James Austin Farrell Well, I guess we've got you by the balls. This was Davy's reply, once I had explained my predicament to him, perhaps sounding too desperate, and, I imagine, looking troubled. I needed the job. Busboy. Proper noun. A job title I could hardly correlate etymologically with working in a pub. Though, in spite of my ignorance of this bottom-rung métier in the pub-restaurant field of work, and in spite of his candid claim that by taking the job I would be handing him my testicles, in spite of Davy's furnished hard but fair demeanour, that even though determined to assure me he was a decent working-class chap like myself, it did exactly the opposite. In spite of all that, I was desperate to take the job. The thought occurred to me, as I presented Davy with the bereft look of a man whose circumstances ensured he must keep smiling, 
that if being a busboy entailed gutting rats in the cellar twelve hours a day, I'd have gladly picked up the scalpel and started there and then. I had assumed, whilst juggling my time in the UK between scoring heroin, doing heroin, and finally, begrudgingly, working, that finding a job in Canada would be easy. Without an inkling of my own arrogance, I imagined that the Canadians would take a British castaway into their arms, wipe the black soot marks from my face, a consequence not of industrial graft, but industrial boredom, the aforementioned smack, hand me a flag for my backpack to sew proudly into the hood, and slip a work permit into my back pocket. I imagined Canada to be some kind of halfway house where English junkies could straighten out while developing a strange hybrid accent. Regardless of my thinking that the capital was Toronto, and that the country didn't have a summer, I had roots there. The safety net of Canada had been designed for people like me, by people like me. Hadn't distant relatives of mine inured homicidal winters, building homes and cities while embracing a keen sense of libertarianism, so that delinquents from terrible places could take that country as refuge when disenchantment set in for good? I may not have qualified for refugee status, but my sheer failure at being English should have gained me some sympathy in the easy-come, easy-go government offices of Ottawa immigration. Canada didn't need me. My only hope, I read in the confounding booklets handed to me by immigration, was if I could prove I had some particular skill that no Canadians were already endowed with. It was a daunting task trying to think of an ability I could bring to the national table of labour that thirty-odd million Canadians hadn't already proved themselves capable of doing. Trying to separate my head from the heads of the nation, elevating myself above all the people I saw in the street. What did I have that they didn't? I hadn't in my life ever really trained, studied, or even concentrated much on anything if the task at hand did not reward some kind of instant physical pleasure. I quickly resigned myself to a visaless state, and went in search of a job where I would be paid under the table. I was tentatively, provisionally, uncertainty has been my life's labour, in love. Before I even met her, I was in love with her. Whether it was a love of pragmatic necessity, or a love of poetic serendipity, I am still not sure. I like to think both. While lying on my back in a hospital, somewhere in Upper Galilee, post-appendectomy, mid-withdrawal, some of my new kibbutz friends renegged me with stories about the wayward Canadian chick who had been drinking the bombshell to bar regulars under the table. I was relieved to find her a few days later, and I think she was relieved to find me. Relief. That's all it really takes to find yourself in love. I left the hospital. I met her. I showed her my stapled shut surgical scar. She wrestled me to the ground and almost tore it open. And months later, she was working at the nadir of British employment, cutting up dead chickens in a dirty bakery for minimum wage, while I worked nights packing brake pads. We hardly ever saw each other during our time together in Leeds, and when we did, it seemed we were limited to two forms of interaction, fucking and shouting at each other. And sometimes we do both at the same time. This was the only time we got to multitask. Real life, that is working life, and living in a flat on England's most robbed street, robbed our relationship of all the things we liked about it. Namely, the adventure, the freedom, the chaos, that we had indulged over months of travelling around Asia together, after the kibbutz. 
Vegetarians don't like cutting up chickens. You might say it's an ethical work hazard for them. I am claustrophobic, and packing things felt like a treachery. Drug-free, quotidian adulthood had turned into something much more malevolent than I think we both could ever have imagined. Our love story, founded in idealism, discovered its corresponding cynicism. So my girlfriend, her name was Holly, moved back to Canada to start university, while I honed and exploited, naturally drugs became a top priority palliative again, self-pity with my brake pads packing the chilly nights away, cursing the many damp inimical boxes as if it were their fault my girl had left the country. After a few months on the night shift, I had managed to save enough money to buy a ticket to Canada. We had written many letters to each other, managing to repress much of the nastiness we'd vented at each other during our England come down. The idealism prevailed in the missives. It made a strong comeback, though I think both of us, I was certainly, were concerned that our violent episode in England was more than circumstantial. When I arrived in Canada, one of the things I noticed first, in a cultural sense, was a pervasive sense of optimism in the people I spoke to. I had to ascribe this, a survival instinct maybe, to phoniness, as optimism was as foreign to me as poutine, and like poutine, it was unrealistic. People seemed to move with a sense of purpose, like they were actually going somewhere, and not just getting rid of hours and space, brushing minutes under the rug, depicting next Friday night in their heads every Monday morning. In England, it seemed to me that I and the people that I knew moved because we were pushed. Pushed out of bed by the alarm clock, pushed to work, pushed around, and pushed back into bed where resentfully we slept with the knowledge that another morning would surely push itself into our lives. Shortly after landing, I realised that I didn't want to return. This would be my final exodus. My England chapter was over. At twenty-four years old, realistically bitter, I told myself with dogged certainty that I would never go back. No one wanted to pay me under the table, except Davy. Davy was the manager of O'Malley's Irish Pub in downtown Montreal, where you were obliged to spend exorbitant amounts of cash on meals such as bangers and mash, or other Irish staples, such as beef fajitas. They had Guinness on tap, and the entire pub was decorated so that it might look like a pub in Ireland. It was an ill-designed, postmodernist version of an Irish pub, with dissonant bric-a-brac fastened to the walls, songs from the old land playing cyclically, and miserable diaspora with names like Jimmy and Eamon sat in cadaverous gloom all day at the bar, intermittently nibbled at by shoals of jaunty plastic paddies. Paradoxically, the conglomerate of Irishings really only denoted the pub's arrant un-Irishness. A bare room would have been more Irish. Davy gave me the job. I had become a bus boy. One of two bus boys. The other bus boy, a shy but eager to please young man, who had no doubt been bullied in school, explained the vicissitudes of my occupation. He used the verb to bus in its present continuous tense. Bussing. You'll be bussing most of the day, but you might have to do a bit of prep, he informed me, looking unnervingly sincere. I listened, nodding, trying not to look vague or disinterested, 
trying not to smile mordantly in the face of his earnestness, and wondered which part of the job defined the verb to bus. I didn't even know what he meant by prep. Ahead of me was shame and disaster. Thanks a lot. I really need the job. It's much appreciated, I had told Davy. You mean you really can't get a work permit, you being English and all? He looked at me calculatingly, giving me the impression he was suspicious of my willingness to take such criminal wages without hesitation, though there was a doggish opportunism in his eyes, which no doubt won over any suspicions he had. Davy, judging by his skin tone and facial features, was most likely from somewhere in South America, though probably second-generation Canadian. I imagined he had worked hard to get where he was as manager, was rationally proud of his job status, and had no scruples about the ethicality of his paying me less than minimum wage, and no cut on the accumulated tips which the other busboy received. He, I envisaged, had also had to invest time in the past in bad jobs that paid low wages. He understood my position. He was personable. He was frank. He grabbed my shoulder affectionately and said, "Hey," in that deep baritone that Italian mafia employees are fond of enunciating in the movies to a colleague they later garrote. He was more than happy to take me on. He was also an impressionable cunt, and this I knew as soon as meeting him. For all its abstractness and unpopularity, there was no better word to describe Davy. There were just too many words out there to hate him with, and that confused matters. He fitted cunt roundly. He was multidimensional, bad in so many ways. So after a while, I gave up making lists of adjectives, and settled with one. It was unfortunate for me that he would turn out to be far less of a cunt than the owner of the pub. No, I, I doubt it. Well, no, definitely not. I've been to immigration already, I told him. We really do have you by the balls, he gladly told me for the second time. The Canadian winter brought an ice storm, as celestially brilliant as it was unforgiving and pernicious. The whole city was glazed and overweight. Trees bent lopsided under ice duress. Concrete stressed. Slabs of stone like buried tombs were trapped under our feet. Whole pavements disappeared, and street signs fossilized, pressing urbanized bugs to their steel hearts. In the Arctic wind tunnels, where cumbersome people were flanked by foreboding skyscrapers, you never saw anyone's face. Bodies were wrapped in multiple layers of clothes, making the streets sinister places. People shuffled ponderously over the snow with as little conviction as animals walking towards loaded bait. The ice storm gave the most prosaic of folk a glimpse of the psychedelic, though it also crippled everyone's movements, like all good drugs do. It should have been the season of daylight robbery. Everyone wore a mask, and no one could run or drive or even turn on an alarm. It could have been an epoch for the criminal, a heyday for any committed thief, and I couldn't help but wonder why more people weren't openly smashing windows of jeweler's shops or tobogganing down the street with bags full of ice-cold cash. I guess I was in the grips of culture shock. It was as enchanting as much as it was debilitating, so I think everyone forgave it its wickedness. We were all hypnotized walking to work, mystified at the sight of a park bench mesmerized under street lamps. The internal organs of the city then froze, and all but the heftiest of industrial immunities didn't succumb to utter failure. Pipes wailed and cracked around the clock, 
then the death throes, then morbid silence. Boilers froze, the electricity facing starvation withdrew its currents, and the water retreated back to reservoirs, only to find there was no place to hide from the cold. Outside in the streets, people were impaled by giant icicles falling from skyscrapers at the behest of the sun who sadistically donned his cap during rush hour. Finally, much to my relief, shops were looted and businesses started to suffer. Everyone not on the storm side lost money. The companies that sold generators rubbed their frostbitten hands together, while the old with their rheumatis found stiff in their basements, clinging to their lifeless pets. O'Malley's stayed open for much of the ice storm, and I had to do the ice chipping each morning in minus twenty odd weather conditions. Trying to evade frostbite, wearing only the inferior winter clothing I had brought with me from England. Before the Canadian winter, I really had no concept of minus twenty or minus thirty. It was as alien to me as a new element. And so, as I packed my bags for Canada, oblivious to the warnings from Holly about the low temperatures, I believed that a hat and a few thick sweaters would suffice. It didn't take long to figure out just how Davy had me by the balls. Not only was he paying me a pittance, he also had me doing all manner of jobs that no one wanted to do. I became the pub factotum, a vassal to a plastic Irish businessman and labourer for a dodgy, bitter pub manager. I cleaned out the cellar. I dug up frozen garbage from the snow. I washed dishes. I waited without tips. I scrubbed steps and polished bars. I even knocked down a wall and painted the upstairs room. It turned out that the verb to bus meant doing everything undesirable. My bus boy was a manifold dog's body, an ensnared jack-of-all-trades demeaning. The Canadian staff was all friendly enough, but thought better of eye contact when they saw me being asked to do something not in a busboy's job description. This kind of non-action, I wondered, may have been an element of the Canadian compassion I'd heard about. The couple of real Irish workers in Montreal on sabbatical from their real world were treated with reverence and respectful apprehension. The owner, his name was Mike, was immediately odious. I had no qualms about my quick judgment of him. He had an aura, and it stunk. He was rotten somewhere. When I met him for the first time, I was scrubbing a pan. He heard me speaking and rushed towards me. Tenaciously, he asked, Hey man, where are you from? He expected me to say Belfast or Donegal. When I told him England, he turned and walked away without uttering another word. If only I'd have said Belfast, I'd have been emancipated from the recalcitrant pans and stubborn forks. Mike had said little to me after that. Only on occasion he'd tell me that I hadn't done a good enough job cleaning the upstairs bar floor, and could I do it again. As I mopped already clean surfaces and picked up invisible cigarette butts, I tried to look happy all the time just to annoy him. On one occasion he walked over to me. The bar was full of wealthy Montreal business types taking beer and meat for lunch, and said, in a volume that turned heads, I noticed some pubic hair in the men's urinal. Can you do something about it? What could I do? I needed the job. I was desperate. In love. Cold. My balls were stapled to the wall next to the impish smile of Oscar Wilde. As a reckless but fruitful cure to my growing resentment, I broke things. Smashing glasses and wrecking parts of the kitchen when no one was around. Mike was as far removed from the homeland as I was from pagan witches, though he clamoured and clasped for an identity with his long-sundered relatives. 
He despised the English. He condemned me. I was paying for the atrocities of avaricious English landowners of an age unknown to myself. I was paying for the incarceration of Daniel Day-Lewis in the film In the Name of the Father. He was playing a part himself, but in a story that had no relevance to anyone but himself. It was a crude work of solipsism. In February, a friend of mine died. I awoke one morning and told my girlfriend that something was wrong. Instinctively, I called England. As soon as his mother said, I'm sorry, I knew what had happened. It was my own proof of some kind of collective consciousness, a proof of a shared existence. A week earlier, I had written a poem about him, and referred to him throughout, in the past tense. At the time, I thought nothing of it. He had died of an overdose in his bathroom, a bathroom we spent many a night in puking into the sink, when a bottle of Thunderbirds might as well have been poison. And a year or two later, after spending hours traipsing the streets on LSD, I'd spend some time alone in that same bathroom, watching with grim amazement as the skin on my face coagulated, and with further inspection dissolved away from my skull. We were eighteen, nineteen, twenty and I sat on the toilet in this same bathroom, thinking I was in another bathroom in another house, whilst grappling with the ridiculous hallucinations of MDMA. And after this came the dark ages. Both of us together, more removed from each other than ever, were dealt the unanticipated downers of heroin addiction. I would nod off on that toilet seat with a sliver of scorched tinfoil in my hand, and intermittently fill the sink with bile. His father had to kick down the door, though it was too late. This was a scene I played out in my head many times after his death. He lay dead in the corner of the room when his dad found him with a syringe still in his arm. Such a sight would become a cruel cliché within my circle of friends as we all flirted with a chance of getting older. I had chosen not to be on heroin, and staying in England, staying with him, might well have killed me too. I abandoned our long friendship. I abandoned him. I left him with sores on his hands, shooting into veins in his cock, selling off a record collection that I had always contended with. His dad later told me, as he clutched me, crying convulsively, that after I left his son had never been the same. The guilt I felt after hearing this, with my own sorrow in its climax, I quickly repressed, with such subconscious alacrity that I gave myself no chance at grappling with it. My sorrow then turned to disenchantment. It boiled itself out, leaving an acrid, stifling anger in its place that I would embrace, and I thought would never relinquish. His death was cruel and unimaginable. It was wrong. It was unfair, and so too was life, and I was never sure of this fact than after my friend had died. Cynicism may, before that, have been a stage I was going through, but after his death it was immovable, absolute. I didn't have any money. Not being able to see his family, attend his funeral, this made not having money, for the first time in my experience, feel like not having the use of my legs. Money had never meant more to me. My girlfriend gave me all her savings. She had hidden and stored dollars for years, telling me one day she would do something great with this money, treat herself, and she gave me everything. I grabbed at this kindness, maybe too willingly. That is, I did not say, no, I can't. I said, thanks. Abstractly, I understood what she was doing for me. 
there was no way at the time I could describe to her how grateful I was. I just took the money and ran. Mike, in his supernatural way of being nice, was understanding, and told me that I would be given the two weeks off and not to worry. I would have a job when I returned. It seemed disrespectful to my dead friend that I should even think about asking Mike for leave, and that I should be glad that I would have a job when I got back. The proper thing to do would have been to scream and shout, fuck the job, and leave the pub burning behind me. But either propriety or economic rationality got the better of me. Emotionally, it was wrong. Death, deadness, the immense and unending separation of it was an untenable, unthinkable puzzle I couldn't even start to put together. What was I supposed to do? I didn't know. My thoughts were all limited to a kind of in-the-moment delirium. I couldn't put one foot forward without being crippled by sadness. I left the bright snow for the cloudy malaise of English winter, never less fearless of my plane going down. In his bedroom, where I had slept over hundreds of nights in the past, his father asked if I had painted the picture that hung on the wall. I had painted it a few years before, and given it to him as a gift. Couldn't bear to look at it. His dad insisted I take what was left of his records, his clothes. I said no, and he insisted. He would want that. You are, were, the same size as him. That's what he told me. An impossible kindness to be asked to claim from the dead, and the tenses, the tenseness of the past and the present. He is, he was, the cruelty of a verb. I left that house for the last time, shuffled through the pebbles on the driveway for the last time, walked into the street and looked back at the house at the end of the lane for the last time. I would have liked to have disappeared rather than wait for a bus that would be the start of a journey of years without him. Holly was there for me, but distant, like the internal organs of my own body. Her importance was eclipsed by the selfishness of my subjectivity. So I took heroin. How irredeemably wrong that felt, to hold in my hands the murder weapon that had killed him, to infect and disperse my grief with that weapon, to try and dismantle the memory of him for just a couple of hours. But of course I did it. I took to it, as they say, like a duck to water. Leaving England wasn't enough. I was foolish to believe that I had ever left England. England was with me forever. It was all over me, sitting like inactive cancer in the marrow of my bones. For many months after his death, he came to me in dreams and protested that he was still alive. And I believed him. He had always been stubborn. He had always beaten me in arguments even when he was obviously wrong because he wore me down, he exasperated me, and I had always folded under his deviousness, his ambition and his playful smile. He had made me believe many things in life I knew I should probably not have believed, and now he was doing the same in death. In these dreams, as he vouched for the great mistake that had been made, as he prodded me and laughed and ensured me he was verily awake and waiting for me, I believed him. Sometimes, after I awoke, as the dream still held on to its reality, I thought that maybe there could have been a grave misunderstanding, that everyone was wrong, that he was right, that I would walk into the living room and listen to my girlfriend tell me that he had just called. He was that convincing. And to not believe him, that would be to abandon him again. Some nights I went to bed hoping in vain that he might really turn things around. That same year, 
another death had occurred during the time Holly and I had lived in the UK together. Only, with the news of this person dying, I shed no tears. I had no dreams where the dead materialised unharmed. I had lost this person in life, and so when my brother came round to my house one day and told me, while fighting back tears, that our mother had died, my mute base reaction was to close the door and fuck my girlfriend. If there was any grief I felt for the death of my mother, it was a grief that I had control of. I had grieved at her demise, while she was still sitting on the family sofa drinking herself to death. At first emaciated, and then later, due to liver failure, she ballooned out as a result of all those hostile liquids that her liver could not break down. She would go to the hospital to be drained, and with the temerity of a terminal compulsive liar, deny that she was a drunk. Up until her last days, she was not a drunk. She died of shock one day, not before she had lost the capacity to remember her husband and a family who were all unsure of how sad they should feel. If feelings were repressed after her death, they were icing on the cake feelings, subsidiary sadness, compared to the feelings we had all bottled up, packed down, diminished and denied during her life. It was a crippling relief, a horribly selfish relief, that she had finally succumbed to what we knew would kill her. Her death I could deal with, but her own sadness in life I would never deal with. Her story, the ferment and cruelty of her existence, her unhinged and sordid drama, I would never really understand. And so, rightfully, egotistically, I blamed myself. My father never said a word about her after she died, not even at her funeral, where the vicar, like a PR for the dead, released to us an utterly spurious press release of her life. My father did not speak, not then, not ever. He was a vocal eunuch, a silent martyr to my mother's mouthy ideology, and frequent violent protestations. He was a coal-miner's son, an only son, weathered by his own mother's naked resentment at ever being born. He had been a crutch his whole life for unhappy women. They abused him, beleaguered him, rendered him catatonic from the relentless traumas they perpetrated on him. It must have been in a moment of modernity for him. Perhaps he had read something in a newspaper that he decided to take antidepressant medicine. He did not need it. What he needed was his life back in his own hands. He needed to quit the dead. The bathroom became a cornucopia of pills that he took, reviled, spat out, and finally gave up on. You can't medicate people like my father. After my friend died, I decided to ransack the bathroom cabinet and fill a bag with all kinds of medicine, both herbal and prescription. I must have had about a hundred pills in my bag. I knew only they were for depression, and that was enough. My plane left Leeds Airport for Amsterdam, where I could then board a plane to Montreal. About an hour before we landed, I was told that there would be sniffer dogs in the airport when we landed, as it was thought that there might be drugs being taken into Canada. I thought nothing of it. Only when one of the dogs took a liking to me, and I was dragged from the queue, did I actually realise that I may still be carrying drugs. I had not changed my clothing from the night before when I had been smoking heroin with friends. In fact, when I put my hands in my pockets, I found two pieces of screwed-up foil that had been used to chase the heroin. It could have been the foil that attracted the dog, or something worse. Perhaps some heroin I had forgotten about. 
On walking to a place in the airport to be searched, I became slightly concerned, though all the time it was difficult for me to be concerned about anything with my friend's death still taking up just about all the bother I had in me. An improbable man told me I was a drug runner. He asked why I looked scared, why I was sweating. He told me I would be taken for a cavity search. He asked me if I knew what that felt like. I told him he should search my belongings. It was then I realized there might be another reason to be bothered. I wondered for a second if my dead friend, as an ameliorative for his death, had set this whole thing up, his own tragic comedy. It was certainly not past him. In life he was a keen exponent of the practical joke everyone thought was maybe just a bit too much. The clothes the man's assistant had pulled from my backpack had not been washed. I'd had no time in England. Possibly as a result of the drugs I'd been taking, I'd had an unfortunate accident in England and shit my pants. The pants and the boxers were in the backpack. As she pulled them out, as I turned scarlet, she tried not to look disgusted. The man looked out of sorts. This was a non-sequitur, not something he'd trained for. It was during this awkward time, where no one wanted to make eye contact with me, that I reached into my pocket and threw the balls of foil under the table. They didn't see a thing. At the bottom of the pack, the girl pulled out a bag of multicolored pills. Gleefully, the man asked me, So, what is this then? I informed him that they were pills for depression. Though he seemed certain he had found his drug runner. The pills went off for testing, while I waited with the girl in silence. About an hour later, the guy returned and dismissed me. Go see your girlfriend, he said. The snow was thawing. The trip had ended, and with disturbing unease I walked into the cold streets, knowing my life would never be the same again. The tentative facades of buildings came crashing down, and an altogether new storm threatened the city. The storm of dismantling. Sidewalks were sectioned off because of falling ice. Trees came back to life. Cigarette butts began new lives on the sidewalks. As if the city had been frozen in time, it awakened to a new but damaged age. I returned to O'Malley's the first Monday back. When I entered the pub, one of the Canadian kitchen staff said to me, Your job's gone, man. There's another busboy. A little later, I saw Davy. Sorry, two weeks is a long time. I had to fill the position. What can I say? I didn't say anything. I just turned around and left. Some time later, I went back into the pub, and Davy said to me, Your friend didn't really die, did he? I went out in search for another job. Traipsing around those freezing streets, marching down the blistering wind tunnels with those ugly skyscrapers flanking me, Canada was quickly losing its charm. Then one day, whilst riding the metro, I caught sight of an advertisement for medical trials. Phoenix International was the company name. I took down the number. Alone in the apartment, my girlfriend at university, I called Phoenix. Do you smoke? Only when I go out. How many a day? Like I said, I rarely smoke, maybe a couple when I go out. Do you drink? Not often, maybe once a week. Have you ever taken drugs? If so, what drugs? Smoked cannabis when I was in high school, that's it. Have you ever been tested for HIV or AIDS? No. Do you have a criminal record? No. Do you suffer from any of the following? 
depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, stress disorder, epilepsy, claustrophobia, insomnia, dizziness, heart disease, liver failure, kidney malfunction? Do you have any allergies to prescription drugs, and have you ever had a major operation? No. Can you come for a full medical on Wednesday night? Yes. And yes was the truth, unlike the rest of the information I had given. I am actually allergic to penicillin, and I wondered after the interview if I shouldn't have told her that. I suffer from two of the diseases, disorders she mentioned, but I don't suffer that much from either, especially as I always try to keep a Valium hidden somewhere for a particularly irrational day. My untruth seemed innocuous to me, inconsequential, and to be honest, telling the truth in an interview would have seemed somewhat a breach of my character. I arrived for my check-up a few nights later, having traversed most of Montreal, freezing whilst walking in the streets and thawing out in the metro. The clinic, a shabby-looking block of offices, no more prepossessing than a loaf of stale bread, stood before me so unenigmatically that I wondered if Phoenix International might be a hoax, and I had been set up for something far more sinister than testing drugs. Looking at the other participants, I realised immediately that I wasn't the only one who had lied about his health, and more than likely prior convictions in drug history. Had French working-class Canadians not embraced the fashion sense only seen in French-speaking Canada, then it might have looked not unlike a dull queue on any given day in the north of England. The rejected, forlorn, washed-up faces of the other participants were faces I had lived with most of my life, though the sartorial uniqueness that dressed the faces' bodies was something I had never come across before. This particular venture of doing fuck-all to earn a living earned as much more than the dole handed out in the UK. This was a shining example of Canada's much-lauded top-three placed, amongst Denmark and Sweden, best standard-of-living country in the world. I'm certain that if Phoenix outsourced to Dolites and Smackheads in England, they could have saved a lot of money. Many of the people I first met in that office looked as though they had fallen on hard times. Some had the look of bad, as in unsuccessful criminals. Others just looked poor, and some were noticeably embarrassed about the fact that they were there. There were men in the office with me who looked as though they had just been for an audition for a part in a 70s B-movie about hustlers, or rather, victims in films about hustlers. I saw fine-toothed combs ostentatiously sticking out of back pockets, slick-back hair on those who had any hair, packs of smokes rolled into the shoulders of T-shirts. The combs would be drawn now and then and run through thinning greased hair. Some of the men were moccasins whose ratty tassels were caked with mud. One man wore bright lime green and pink moon boots that looked oversized against his bleached skin-tight jeans. Many wore football jackets and reminded me of those soft-porn American college films I'd rent out as a twelve-year-old to experiment with wanking. Everyone, bar one or two who sat silently in the corners of the room, looked conspicuously damaged. Thank you once again for listening. If you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to make a comment and leave a donation. 
Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Nil Desperandum can be heard every Wednesday at 12.30 Pacific on the No Agenda live stream. That's at noagendastream.com. Or download the podcast every Sunday at www.ndstories.com.